Hello and welcome to the brand new series uh, of the Cytokine Signaling Forum podcast focusing specifically on access arthritis. We'll be bringing new episodes on a bi-monthly basis and we'll also be supplying you with monthly slide text to help you keep up to date with the latest research and publications in the field of access arthritis. First of all, allow me to introduce myself and my co-host. I'm Professor Xenon von Baraliakos from the Ruhr University of Bochum in Germany. And today I'm joined with Dr. Nehal Mehta from the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute, National Institute of Health, Bethesda, USA. If you want to find more um, about us and the papers that we, that we discussed today, please head over to the CSF website, which is uh, of the URL www.cytokinesignaling.com. Thank you so much. So today, our first paper that we're going to talk about from Juan Helda and colleagues investigated upacitinib efficacy in SPA. The second paper was authored by Wittrand and colleagues and looks at factors associated with drug-free remission in early onset SPA patients. And finally, in Glintberg et al., they focus on the association of DMARD treatments with hospital-acquired infections. Thank you, so um, let's go over to the first paper entitled Efficacy and Safety of Uparacitinib for Active Ankylosing Spondylitis Refractory to Biologic Therapy, a Double-Blind Randomized Placebo-Controlled Phase 3 uh, Trial. Regarding the study background, we know that we still have limited um, uh, options, treatment options for patients with um, access spondylarthritis, especially when it comes to biologic DMARDs. And we also, in the meantime, do know very well that junk inhibitors have emerged as alternative uh, oral treatment options for active patients with ankylosing spondylitis based on the clinical trials that we have seen already in biologically marked naive patients. And in the current study, um, the authors aimed to see and evaluate what happens in uh, regarding efficacy and safety of upadacitinib versus placebo in a biologic DMARD inadequate responder population with access to arthritis, including um, by both patients who have been pre-treated with a PNF blocker and TIL-17 inhibitor. Regarding the methods, um, I already mentioned that in the title, it was a double-blind randomized placebo-controlled phase three trial with patients in adult age with active access to arthritis who met the modified New York criteria, obviously, and they had to be inadequate responders to one or two biologic DMARDs. This means either TNF or L17 inhibitors. Um, the selection was made or the allocation was made one-on-one -on -one to either oral uparacitinib 15 milligrams, the approved dose um, already daily. They included 211 patients there or to placebo. We had 201 patients in that uh, group for a 14 week double-blind treatment. The key endpoints were the usual one in the meantime in the field of access for arthritis as a sport. Um, and this was measured at week 14 and there were secondary endpoints such as ASDA, SPARC, the scores also for inflammation and um, the metastasis um, scores including masses, total back pain, nocturnal pain and BASFI, the functional index. Now regarding the Results, most of patients had previous exposure to one um, uh, biologic DMA. This was a DNF blocker, obviously 74%, 75% of this um, of the population was uh, in there. And this was followed by one IL-17 inhibitor, 13%, two TNF blockers, 8%, one TNF blocker, and one IL-17 inhibitor, 5%. Uh, and just a minority 
below 1% had 12-17 inhibitors. 77% of the patients discontinued prior biologic TMRT due to um, inefficacy. This is an important information because um, the other um, about 30% had um, an intolerance. This means they didn't necessarily have to have failed, purely failed the treatment of a biologic DMARD before. So we can say that eight out of 10 patients indeed uh, were two inadequate responders and all endpoints were met at with 14. And that's the important message of the paper. So this means, um, and that's now coming to the main outcome that um, already having said that the endpoints were met, that we had a significant difference um, uh, of uh, the ASAS-40 responders in patients uh, in the eupadacitinib group as compared to placebo. The numbers here were 45%, a remarkable number, versus 18% after 14 weeks only. Obviously, this is highly significant. There was also significant improvement in other outcomes, as mentioned before, quality of life, spinal mobility, anthesitis, with the, um, and also with um, uh, mothers, we also had ASQL health uh, as a self index in BASME, and um, uh, including um, uh, which were included in the significant improvement under ubiquitinib. Another point that I would like to make is the improvement in the objective signs of inflammation. This means uh, high sensitivity CRP, centrally red, and also the MRI spinal and sacroiliac joint scores with the SPARC score also centrally red. Also here, significant improvement uh, from ubiquitinib versus placebo. And we, of course, also had all the other outcomes, including function and pain, which were also highly significantly differing in terms of benefit for or in the group of ubiquitinib after 14 weeks. Regarding the adverse events, we had 41% of patients with an adverse event in ubiquitinib group and 37% in the placebo group. This means a very similar um, uh, situation, uh, not big differences, and um, the, there was a numerical um, uh, difference in the ubiquitinib group in terms of serious adverse events, but this still was very low, 2.8% in these patients without any new safety risks. So overall, regarding this trial, uh, we can say that also in this um, population of with inadequate responders to a prior biologic treatment in active ankylosing spondylitis, ubiquitinib improved significantly signs and symptoms of the patients without any new safety signal. The treatment was well tolerated, and um, it, I think it's a very important information here that we have in front of us in terms of expanding the armamentarium of patients with access to arthritis. Overall, I guess, this is something we need to know. These are very important data. As mentioned in the beginning, we lack um, uh, treatment options, especially in this indication. Therefore, I believe is uh, this is in, indeed very interesting and important information. I don't know, Neil, how you think about it um, or if you have any other comments before we go on. Well, that was excellent coverage. And no, I would just highlight three things that you brought up in that, uh, you know, real exceptional coverage of that. I would say first, the fact that 30% of these patients had intolerance to biologic therapy and now all of a sudden they're taking a, a medicine that is going to reduce systemic inflammation reduce image, you know, defined activity. And the best one, it improved their quality of life. So I, I touch on all three of right. those points that mm -hmm. we have a group of patients who 77% had prior discontinuation of DMARD therapy due to lack of efficacy and 30% because of tolerance. And now you have a treatment that achieved primary endpoint as well as other things. So um, I think it's, it's great. Yeah, and I don't fully agree. And I think this is what we clinicians take away from these, uh, from these kind of studies. Great. 
So our second paper uh, is factors associated with drug-free remission in five years in early onset axial spondyloarthritis patients, data from the DESIRE cohort. Uh, and the first thing that I will give you as background is that according to ULAR's ASAS recommendation, really the ultimate goal should be inactive disease or what I would call remission or quiescent disease. And currently there's no standard definition for, for spontaneous remission in, Anglo, in, in ANGSPA. So the general resolution of symptoms of disease activity is what's considered a remission. The study itself aimed to understand the proportion of patients with early disease who reach drug-free uh, remission five years after their inclusion in a prior ANGSPA cohort. And the baseline demographics, clinical, biologic, and imaging factors associated with that five-year drug-free remission and the impact of treatments received within the, the four first five years follow-up. The methods were adults, 412 of them from the DESIRE study um, with uh, axial spondyloarthropathy with or without drug-free remission at five years. Logistic regression was used to identify association between demographic, clinical, and imaging characteristics at five years. Sensitivity analyses performed on patients who sustain that drug-free survival at four and five-year visits, and patients with sustained inactive disease at the four and five-year mark were analyzed. And before we get into the results, I just think that this is an incredibly important moment to point out that we just don't know much about these patients. So a study like this is informative regardless of its results. Patients in five years of drug-free remission had shorter symptoms uh, duration. They had lower axial and peripheral disease involvement. They had lower values of CRP. Uh, they had less functional impairment. And there was no difference in extra articular feature history. At five years, 18% of the patients with early onset disease were in the drug-free remission, only 18%. Patients in drug-free remission versus not drug-free remission at five years had base, lower baseline AS, uh, ASAS NSAID scores. It was 40.6 versus 58.4, lower analgesic use, and lower anti-TNF use. And in multivariate analysis, patients with longer disease duration had higher HAC-AS scores and ASDAS scores and baseline NSAIDs intake scores had lower probability in being in drug-free remission. Patients undergoing DMAR during follow-up had a very low probability to be in drug year from remission. So what about the sensitivity analyses? So what are sensitivity analyses used for? Really to understand if there's subgroup differences within these uh, the findings. Among the seven, 373 patients with the ASDAS CRP less than 1.3 at four or five years, 9% were in drug-free inactive disease. Symptom duration and scores were considered associated with drug-free survival. And any DMARD use within the first three years of follow-up was associated with inactive disease. Patients with an ASDAS CRP less than 2.1, 15% were associated with drug-free inactive disease at years four and five. Male gender was associated with a higher likely to have sustained low disease activity. And CRP NSAID score at baseline and any DMARD intake decreased the probability to be in low disease activity or inactive disease. No gender-based differences were detected in the CRP groups and sustained inactive disease or LDA limited disease activity of 15% was rare in this cohort. So what did the authors conclude before we talk about the paper? Lower baseline disease activity and functional scores are linked to the probability of being in drug-free remission at the end of five years 
in patients with recent onset eczema. So what do I take away from this? The first thing I would say is, is that lower baseline disease activity and functional scores actually make for an earlier uh, diagnosis. So uh, identifying patients early and keeping symptoms as well as inflammation low shows that at four and five years, these patients are doing better. I don't know if you had any thoughts, Professor. Yeah, well, I think this indeed is uh, the uh, exact, um, exactly same um, conclusion I would uh, have take away here. Um, obviously, well, it's trivial. If you start low, you may end up lower. And if you start very high, there might be some um, disease activity remaining there. Um, nevertheless, um, I think it makes absolute sense to, to, uh, to remember that um, if we see patients early, if we diagnose patients early and if we have the opportunity to treat them as early as possible, um, we are able also to bring them down to, I would say, no disease. Um, I wouldn't say cure the disease, but bring them down to no disease, uh, meaning obviously no activity and no treatment. But we also take away that this is something that this is not really very uh, frequent, not very common, and we cannot really that, uh, as, um, reach it in very many patients. That's something important. Thank you. Well, uh, uh, we do have a third paper, as you mentioned before, and I would like to go through it uh, before we um, uh, come to another conclusion and another discussion. That third paper is um, entitled, um, Is the risk of in infection higher during treatment with cetuquinumab than with TNF inhibitors? And this was um, including in the, in the title that this was an observational study from the Nordic countries that might be of importance also regarding uh, not only the results themselves, but also the interpretation of the results. Well, obviously, in order to um, compare them with different and other populations and, uh, and areas of the world. So the study background, um, we do know that we have um, different modes of action. We already mentioned that there's TNF blockers, there is um, patients uh, with, uh, who are being treated with uh, um, uh, L17 inhibitors in axial spondyloarthritis. And the positioning, especially of Sekikinumab, which is the first and longer um, uh, um, available L17 inhibitor in terms of um, the treatment regimen and the, the safety, but also efficacy um, results as compared to TNF blockers is still, I wouldn't call it debated, but nevertheless, it is a matter of discussion in very many studies. Um, of course, because we have also no comparative data for safety of the available treatments. And this study was indeed aimed to assess the risk of the key safety outcome infections during treatment with either L17 inhibition with sekinumab or with PMF blockers overall. And the comparison here was, and that's important to remember, the overall risk of hospitalized infections during the first year of treatment with sekinumab and various TNF blockers uh, in patients with spondyloarthritis, this means uh, this includes uh, access spondyloarthritis and psoriatic arthritis. And the risk of specific types of infections were of particular interest. I will report on that later on. So overall, and that's remarkable, we had um, very many patients included in this uh, analysis. There were more than 10,000 patients in axial spondyloarthritis and more than uh, 7,700 patients in psoriatic arthritis, starting with Sekiginumab or TNF blockers, and they were identified in four Nordic rheumatology registries. In the first hospitalized infection, the first hospitalized infection, once again, during the first year of treatment, was identified through linkage to national registries. The primary outcome was the hospital-acquired infections, 
listed at the time of discharge. This means the, the true diagnosis at the end, you know, the true diagnosis of the infection, what the doctors, the physicians have, um, may uh, have mentioned as a diagnosis for um, um, infection during hospitalization. Secondary outcomes, they were the hospitalized infections listed at the time of discharge overall and the infections in outpatient specialized care of um, different types. This means it, and includes tuberculosis, pneumonia, herpes zoster, fungal infections, urinary, urinary tract infections, and erysipelas. Now, the incident rates with um, the 95% um, confident intervals per 100, uh, 100, 100 patient years were calculated. There were adjusted hazard ratios that were estimated, and also um, the sensitivity analysis were done. Um, for uh, the um, for investigating on finding by indication. Now to the results um, during the first year of sacrocinumab treatment versus adalimumab um, and other DNF blockers. And I mentioned adalimumab here because you will see there are some differences as compared to the other DNF blockers. For the risk of hospitalized infections, we have the 3.5% in the sacrocinumab group versus 1.7% half of it in the adalimumab group. And the risk for the other TNF blockers, it fell somewhere in between. The incidence rates um, um, were um, for hospitalized infections um, uh, were 5.0 per 100 patient years for sacrocinumab and 2.3 for adalimumab with the rates for the other TNF blockers also falling somewhere in between especially for etanercept uh, versus sacrocinumab. For the other TNF blockers, there were no statistically significant differences um, for sacrocinumab, I have to say. For the combination of axial spondylarthritis and PSA, a higher risk of hospitalized infections was observed during the first year of treatment with sacrocinumab versus adalimumab. So the combination of all uh, indications of spondylarthritis were um, uh, put in here, um, and there was indeed a higher risk uh, again for secu versus ADA. And the incidence rates uh, were generally higher for PSA versus AXPAM, but they had similar patterns across biologic DMARDs. Sacrocinumab was associated with higher hazard um, um, risk for hospitalized infections versus adalimumab. Um, and the combination um, of TNF cohorts versus, uh, with adalimumab um, as compared to Sacrocinumab uh, was short, um, also similar results. So there was indeed a class effect here that we're talking about. And similar rates were also find, found for pneumonia, for upper um, uh, urinary tract infections, um, uh, fungal infections um, with, uh, for Sacrocinumab. Overall, a higher rate of pneumonia and lower rate of fungal infections were observed for infliximab versus sacrocinumab. This means the IV um, treatment here that we, we know that we need to take that, that into account since the um, uh, mode of um, uh, administration is different. The numbers of events for herpes zoster, erysipelas, and tuberculosis were too low as expected since there's always also a, um, especially for TB, um, um, and screening before starting uh, treatment. So this was too low for uh, allowing for meaningful comparisons. And there was um, no registered recurrence of TB um, during treatment with sacrocinumab. Well, again, I would say as expected. So overall, at least in that cohort uh, combination of data collection from the Nordic, Nordic countries, there was a low frequency of hospitalized infections during treatment with sacrocinumab or TNF blockers in both access to arthritis and PSA. Um, there was, um, this was an overall frequency, which was very low, but in clinical practice, indeed, we did see, or the colleagues did see a double um, absolute risk of sacrocinumab um, in patients for the first year of hospitalized infections 
versus Adalimumab. And while the other TLF blockers were falling in between, at least to me, and this would be um, the, my final remark here, at least to me, this is pretty reassuring that um, what we have always said and we believe and also claim um, still is being backed up by this data. This means biologic DMARD treatment is safe. Um, there is still adverse events and infection risks that we have to take into account, but the overall numbers are extremely low. There seem to be some differences in terms of the mode of action uh, that we uh, see in these Nordic countries again. But still, I would um, I would say that these differences may allow for some, um, let's say, risk classification between patients, but we are still nevertheless on the safe side. Now, I agree. I think it's pretty clear by this paper that the benefit outweighs the risk. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, and again, we um, these data are important because we we have in numbers what we believe we see and practice in daily practice, right? Yep, completely. Well, then uh, we've come uh, to an end um, of our uh, webinar and of recording. Um, thank you very much for joining us in this AXPA podcast um, brought to you by the Cytokine Signaling Forum, CSF. We really both hope that you enjoyed it and you found it useful. If you did, don't forget to subscribe to our channels um, on YouTube, SoundCloud, Cloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from so that you don't miss any future episodes. If you want to read more about what we have discussed today, um, head over to cytokinesignaling.com um, where you'll find detailed summary slides of each of the papers. And uh, with that, I would like to conclude and uh, say, uh, see you next time from both of us. Thank <laughs> you.